Hey, Matt. Hey, Mel. <laughs> we uh, we stayed up too late. We are uh, going to power through this episode. Yeah, we're a little bit exhausted because our weeks continue to be eventful. We're very pleased to say that we have replaced the stolen brass fire department connection, which you might remember us talking about in a previous episode. You should, by the way, remember this because uh, in case it wasn't absolutely clear, everyone listening to this podcast should listen from episode one and keep going forward. If you're just joining us, hit pause, go back to episode one and start from there because uh, this is this is the kind of podcast where there's a whole story and you need to start from the beginning. Yeah, don't hit shuffle on your podcast. No, don't shuffle. It it will be very confusing. But anyway, we got our fire department connection replaced uh, by a professional company. But then we realized that the company did nothing to really stop that connection from being stolen again. Right. It's sort of an inherent design in the connector that we got because we only have so much money. You basically have two bolts that are very easy to remove. So... Just a few hours after they put the new fire department connection on, I went ahead and secured it with some Loctite, uh, the permanent type that uh, is just incredibly difficult to get off. Right. I think you need a blowtorch to get it off. So it's not that difficult, actually. (laughs) I mean, if dude shows up with a blowtorch, uh, I don't know. That's I, I, I'm I'm getting kind of tired. <laughs> <laughs> but then we had a very annoying thing happen immediately after. So you went down and put the Loctite on. What was it? What time was it? It was uh, eight, maybe eight thirty. I think on a Wednesday night. I went down. It's right outside our front door. Spent a little time just uh, you know applying this stuff to the threads. And a funny thing happened the following morning. Mm-hmm. I saw that our house had been tagged mm-hmm. um, along the side of our house, which like, is not just a little tag. Right. It was three full size, like eight foot tall names or, or handles or whatever you call it uh, in, in, in the graffiti world in, in block letters along the side of the first story of our house. And I just want to say when we were under construction, that side of our house was tagged, but it was actually a really good tag. Like It looked kind of cool, and I was kind of cool with it when it was good street art on the side of my building like you know it, yeah there was there, there were some talented individuals <laughs> who, who had uh, tagged up the house before we did construction like, i kind of wanted to ask them back and sort of say hey if you want to make it a little bigger you're free to do that but uh <laughs> but um it it actually got buffed before we even had anything to do with it there's somebody in our neighborhood who was very fast with the 311 to call and clean those off anyway um the funny thing is, the reason I bring this up is I went and looked on the camera and I noticed that as soon as I walked in the door after having secured this fire department connection, you can see those three guys walking past. Like, the door closes and they come into frame and walk right past me. Mm. Uh, and at that very moment, probably as I'm still ascending the stairs... They went around the side and, and started, started yep. tagging our house. Well, anyway, whoever it is in our neighborhood who's very quick on the trigger with 311 apparently called 311 in and it was gone two days later. Right, although I, I will say in the uh, intervening time, I, I had actually taken the following day off because... We had an interview with the local ABC affiliate. Yes, this is so crazy. (laughs) 
So it turns out that our friend Lewis Greenstein wrote a small article about this whole privy artifact theater buying adventure in Philadelphia magazine. And a producer at ABC6 saw that article, thought it was kind of a cool human interest story, and asked one of the reporters if she wanted to do a story on it. The reporter reads the article, Googles the name in the article, and goes, oh shit, I interviewed that woman, Melissa Dunphy, outside the Ice Palace firehouse that I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago when our poor neighbor's house burned down and I went down and got on local news. So she got back in touch with me and said, hey, can I bring a camera crew around and uh, take a look at your artifacts in your home and do a little story on you guys? Of course, I said, Yes, because as you know, Matt and I are in a competition to see who can get on the most local news. Although this is like a win on both of us because we both were in the in the news story. <laughs> so the night before, while people were tagging our house, I was very busy cleaning the absolute shit out of my apartment because you don't want the television crew to know that you generally live your life in a biohazard filth pile um, <laughs> with cat poop in the bathroom so I made it really pretty and the news crew came around and they did a lovely interview and shot lots of footage of our artifacts. Oh, it was great. I always had this weird thing where I want to find drone footage in the area uh, that includes our building. They actually brought a drone out. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> the day after we got tagged up. Um, well, I don't know if the tag will get on. And you know what? And the other thing is, look, I've worked in TV news. Matt's worked in the newspaper industry. You never know if any of this stuff is going to make it to air. Mm -hmm. it, maybe it will. Maybe it won't. It was really cool that they came over and looked at our stuff anyway. Fingers crossed it makes it to air. We will keep you posted. And if you follow us on social media, we will absolutely link to this story when it's published, if and when it's published. I'd mentioned that I'd taken off that day because I was uh, going to this TV interview with Melissa and ABC coming to our house. Uh, but I had actually had a, a really terrible sleep the night before. Uh, you know, I was just kind of upset, you know, for no good reason about this stupid tagging on the house. It wasn't anything offensive. Um, it was just like crappy, uh, just bad style. And in uh, what I think is a, a pure demonstration of the kind of passive aggression that you really only get as somebody growing up in Pennsylvania becoming a software developer, I decided I was going to do something about this to assuage my anger and this energy that I had penned up that had kept me up all night. You see, I had found the Instagram accounts of the three folks who had tagged our house. And uh, one of them in particular had a bunch of pictures from the area behind our house. Uh, we live pretty close to 95 in an elevated section of 95. And he was pretty proud of a, a number of things that he had painted on the pylons back there. So I went out with my five-gallon bucket of paint, and I buffed only his tags. <laughs> I, I left all the other graffiti tags there, because uh, some of them were good. A lot of them were crap. They're just people like trying stuff out. I specifically buffed only his tags. <laughs> it was great. It felt good. Uh, you put paint on my stuff, I'll put paint on yours. <laughs> Came home, had a shower. Five gallons of paint is actually really heavy to drag it up and down between our house and Delilah's. And 
you know, did the interview and then passed out. So that was our week. Yeah. And then, as I said, the next day, the uh, the city came and took away the tag anyway. So there's really no evidence of that guy left <laughs> on this part of the block <laughs> anymore. I mean, I had some like crazy aggressive ideas uh, because Matt found this guy's Instagram. We had a picture of his face and I was thinking that we should make little paste up stencils of his face and then paste up the stencil on the side of our house with a little speech bubble that says, uh, do you teach art classes? Please contact me. (laughs) 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 Apparently this is, I don't know, this is probably a little aggressive. So that's taking the passion out. I I mean, just uh, (laughs) making it fully aggressive. And frankly, you know, looking at the way these guys brag about what they do, it's wrestling with a pig. It's, yeah. it's getting into a tangle that really is not worth our time. It's funny. The one guy who I followed, uh, I followed all three of them. One of them kind of looked at my feed and I think recognized where we were and blocked me. Like he, he put it together. <laughs> he's, well, he's pretty smart. Yeah. He, he, he was the one who was from L.A. who's visiting, who's being shown around. Um, the other one never followed back. But uh, the one particular guy who really tagged around our area, he did follow me back. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because now I'm seeing his posts and getting to know him. Okay. I think I'm going to uh, start conversing with him. Sure, you and should then do that. At some point, be like, "Yo, dude, by the way, don't tag my house." Yeah. <laughs> I I appreciate. There's there's so much around us. Yeah. That is ripe for the tag. Right. Ripe for the tagging uh, that I will not call three one one on. That I will not buff. Just. Don't do my house. Yeah. Well, eventually, we would love to get um, a, a whole mural about Hannah Callow Hill on the side of our house, seeing as we want to call it the Hannah Callow Hill stage. There isn't a mural of Hannah anywhere in the city, and I think it would be really cool to memorialize her that way. And hopefully, once we do that, taggers generally try to leave the murals alone. For those of you who don't know Philadelphia, Philadelphia has a ton of murals. I think we have we're one of the most... Let's just say we're the most. We're, Nobody's going to fact check we're this. We're the city with the most murals in the entire right? country. Philadelphia. Philadelphia, mural city. It's amazing. We have whole organizations that are devoted to murals. So Google it. Google it. <laughs> we just don't even care anymore. You know what? Facts. Who cares? So that was, that was our crazy week. Mm-hmm. Next week, heads up, we usually record a podcast every week, but this coming week I am going to be in Kansas City at the American Choral Directors Association annual conference. So if you happen to be in Kansas City and a choral music person, why don't you swing by? I will have a table there. I will give you some postcards for this podcast, which I had made up this week. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe some choral music too, if you're interested in that kind of thing. But it means that I'll be out of town next Sunday, so we won't be able to record. We will be back in two weeks. Right, so you know that feeling you had about Game of Thrones up until, I guess, this year it's coming back? (laughs) Like, if you take like a fraction, a fraction of that. Right. Just uh, you be write, prepared. Yeah, we're, write we're, a very small fan fiction about us, <laughs> like one sentence fan fiction about us to tide you over uh, for yeah. the return 
of the bug house in two weeks. Uh, we will try to uh, continue to post, uh, you know, additional supplemental information to the Twitter and the Instagram yes. and Facebook accounts that we have. So please follow us on all of those accounts if you are so inclined. And also please keep reviewing and rating us on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and all of the places that you can rate and review because it's... Melissa wants to be podcast because famous. The- <laughs> <laughs> Because I want enough people to listen to this that I don't have to tell the story again. (laughs) Jeez. It's a matter of convenience. Anyway, take a seat. You're in the bug house. Last week, we did a whole podcast about Hannah Callahill and William Penn and the beginnings of Pennsylvania, which uh, are important because our property was part of the original Penn Charter and was owned by the Penn family for a long time. We're doing this because, obviously, our artifacts led us to dive into history. Yeah, we did this because... When we found these artifacts and started learning more about them, we just wanted to know more and more about the setting and everything about it. Well, I will say, actually, our interest in the history of this property predates the artifacts. When we were looking to buy the place, I started doing historical research on the property because I was curious and because I was really excited by the prospect of owning it. So instead of writing music for my PhD, I would use the library of of University of Pennsylvania resources and try to find out who had owned this property in the past. What is, antiques dealers would call it, the provenance. What is the provenance of 103 Callow Hill Street? Right. And, uh, you know, at this time, I was going through a bit of just sort of personal turmoil where I was switching over to a completely different set of tools at work. Without getting too far into it, I was switching from Windows machines at work to a Mac. Uh, I was learning uh, Ruby on Rails for the first time. Basically, totally flying blind into a new vector of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, you were super stressed. I was, yeah. It was a, a little scary. Um, trying something very new uh, within the same domain and also having a lot of work to do while learning on the job. Sure. I also had a lot of work to do, but I was just completely ignoring it. My poor advisor, I was just coming in to my advising sessions and shrugging my shoulders and saying, well, I didn't do anything, but I got this great research on this property that I'm going to buy. You should hear about that. And, you know, he wasn't really interested because that's not why he was meeting with me. Anyway, one of the things that I was able to do right off the bat was look through the previous deeds of this property. There is a resource called Philodocs, D-O-X, short for documents, which I was able to access through the University of Pennsylvania, which allows you to look through deeds for a property going back to the 1970s. Once you get past the 1970s into earlier deeds. Those deeds are in a completely separate database. 
It's called the Philadelphia Historical Land Records Database. And that's a database that it's actually free for anybody to look at. You don't need a special subscription through a university or through a you know law office or anything like that. You can just uh, go and search. However, it is a crazy job. And this is when I talk about <laughs> <laughs> diverting my life to it during this period. I really mean it. The instructions for how to look up a deed in this digitized database online are a 27-page PDF. Just the instructions. And the craziest part about looking up deeds prior to about 1970 is that you have to do it by the seller's or the buyer's name. It's not attached to a property. So you can't just enter a property address and get all the deeds associated with that property going back. No, you have to figure out who was the buyer of the property. Then you search under the buyer's name and look for the deed under that buyer that corresponds to the property. From that deed, you'll find out who the seller was to that buyer. Then you take that seller's name and you search for that in the database and you'll find the previous seller and the previous seller. So you have to find an unbroken line of sellers and buyers going back through the years to sort of trace it all the way back to the beginning. I started this very laborious, ridiculous process. It's like really hard to do. And another thing is once you get back before about 1930, the deeds tend to be handwritten. And handwriting goes through fashions so that things that were written in, say, 1910 were probably very readable to people in 1910. But in 2016, 2015, it's like reading spider scratches on vellum it's like it's it's so hard to decipher which is probably why when you're trying to search through this database you're only given the name right this is uh it looks like it was something that was started in like the late 90s maybe you're working on an access database uh that it's it's oh just... sure yes yeah there's like no nice uh gooey formatting to the database at all it's all just like links <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's wonderful that somebody took the time to scan this information in and at least type in, you know, the names. Right. But that's all you've got. Right. If that. Right. So I managed to trace back the deeds to 1872. And then they dried up. Uh, the the buyer who sold it in 1872, and we'll get into that in a, in a future episode, I couldn't find any deeds under that buyer's name. I just basically was... was stymied completely i couldn't go back any further except the 1872 deed had a little handwritten paragraph in this crazy curly handwriting that mentioned that the property had originated with one benjamin mifflin and that the original deed was contained within a deed book and it actually gave reference numbers for this deed book that corresponded to the historical database that i was in so i was able to kind of skip from 1872 all the way back to the very first deed on that property, which was 1745. And the name on that deed was one Benjamin Mifflin. Yeah, Benjamin Mifflin. The name stuck out to me because I know that we've got a Mifflin County. Mm -hmm. um, Mifflin is actually a very important name in Philadelphia. And so it makes sense that this first deed, which was from the proprietaries of Pennsylvania. At this point in time, I think it was the sons. Yeah, it was Hannah's sons, John, Thomas, and Richard. Mm -hmm. And their names are also on that deed. They were 
allowing Benjamin Mifflin to take control that it's it's weird back then you know the way deeds worked it was almost still feudal so you would have the main owner of the land and then they would sort of cede control of the land to prospectors or developers the developers would then pay a ground rent to the original owner so kind of like a property tax so the original deed from 1745 was the proprietaries of the colony of Pennsylvania the Penn kids allowing Benjamin Mifflin to take control of four lots next to each other on the north side of Callow Hill Street. Each lot was 20 feet wide and 100 feet deep on the condition that he build, quote, four good brick or stone messuages. A messuage is an old word for a residential house. Each of three stories high to the front of the said Callow Hill Street. It's interesting because at this point we're at 1745 and George Washington is 13 years old. His dad has just died and he's kind of depressed. <laughs> right. I always like this one. In 1745, Captain James Cook, the guy who supposedly discovered Australia, <laughs> was 16 years old and had just moved out of home for the first time to become an apprentice to a grocer in a coastal English town. So he wasn't even a sailor yet. This is really the beginning of what leads to us being in this building here, right at that point, 1745. Right. Prior to this moment, the land on this side of Callow Hill Street, outside of the center part of Philadelphia, had really not been subdivided into lots. It was farmland or it was just kind of open fields. But Philadelphia was expanding northward and there needed to be more houses. And the Penn family was interested in Philadelphia continuing to develop and become an urban city. So they were basically selling off lots to developers to be developed. So who are the Mifflins, first of all? Because, as we said, the Mifflin name is pretty important in Pennsylvania history. They were a family of very rich Quaker merchants. They were so rich and so invested in the land in this area, in fact, that they came to Pennsylvania a couple years before William Penn did. They kind of beat Penn to it. It was John Mifflin Sr. and John Jr., his son. And as you will sort of discover, if you look at the Mifflin family tree, they could not stop calling their sons John. <laughs> it's actually really confusing and annoying, just like English people can't think up original names for their towns and cities, they apparently can't think up original names for their goddamn children. It's so annoying. Anyway, John and John come to Philadelphia and hang out in the Swedish colony, New Sweden, what was what there was of it, a couple of years before the Penn Charter is signed. John Mifflin Jr. has three sons, George, John III, and Jonathan Back at this time, Jonathan and John were two separate names. So you can have a brother, John, and the youngest son, Jonathan. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, um, George is the grandfather of Thomas Mifflin, who is probably the most famous Mifflin. Right. He was, what, the first governor of Pennsylvania? He was the first governor after you know, the... Um, the revolution. The revolution, the constitution, mm -hmm. after we figured out what, what the modern governor right, is. Right. And he fought in the Revolutionary War, and he is really the reason why we have a Mifflin County 
and a street in Philadelphia called Mifflin Street. And interestingly, I think, don't quote me on this. I mean, I'm in a, I'm on a podcast quoting myself about this. What am I doing? I think the Mifflin family is the same Mifflin family, like some branch of it, um, established um, Houghton Mifflin. Is that how, he, how you say it? The printing company that does the educational books? Oh, that would make sense. I mean, this is clearly a, a wealthy family yeah. full of merchants right. who are deeply embedded in business. Yeah. That's why they're out here on the forefront of this new colony right. uh, looking for opportunities um, any any which way they can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... That's George's side of the family. John III, the middle child, married a woman named Sarah Sherma. One of the other things about the Mifflin family at this time is they kept marrying women either called Sarah or Hannah. Apparently, if you're a Quaker, you name your daughters Sarah or Hannah and maybe occasionally Rebecca. Again complete lack of originality in names it's kind of hilarious john the third and sarah have benjamin as their kid so benjamin and thomas are second cousins for those of you who are really into mapping out family relationships we'll have a diagram if you really want to chase this down we know all this information because as happens with these families who have the money to keep track of their roots there was a, a document written in i think 1770 mm-hmm. a family history of the Mifflins by John Mifflin. Jonathan. Jonathan. John the Historian. John the Historian, uh, who was also Jonathan Mifflin, the youngest son of John Mifflin Jr. (laughs) I know. It's so... Just give them different names. I mean, what's the name of that boxer who named all his kid the same thing? George Foreman. I was was totally going to bring him up earlier, but I I, I couldn't, (laughs) couldn't find a good spot for it. So... Um, so this brings us around to Benjamin Mifflin. Yeah. Uh, this this guy who clearly was friends with the Pens, got some land from them and started this process out. And we're going to talk about him a little bit because there's an unusual amount of information about Benjamin. Yeah. Uh, although nothing compared to what you're going to hear next episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, One of the things that becomes a theme with our research in this period of history is because Benjamin Mifflin was a Quaker... There is a ton of information about him to be gleaned from the Quaker meeting minutes. Um, Quakers have meetings, and during the meetings, they bring up all kinds of personal issues in their lives, and all of it is written down. And in the last 10 to 15 years, it's all been digitized and indexed and made searchable, which is so great if you're researching Quakers from this period. Right. I couldn't imagine digging through this in the 80s or the 90s. Oh, it's astonishing. Yeah. I would, you would have to go to a library and page through pages. I think there was a written index, but you would have to do it all by hand, reading spidery writing. And I mean, I, I kind of love that idea, but I don't have time for it. No, I wouldn't have had time for it either. Um, so when Benjamin Mifflin, Benjamin Mifflin was born in 1718, and by the time he was 22, His personality is already starting to shine through. This guy is not a guy to shy away from making his opinion heard, even if that opinion means he's literally feuding with everyone around him. (laughs) He's kind of a prototypical Philadelphian. Yeah. That he's just blunt. Yeah. He's, you know, he knows what he wants and he talks about what he sees in front of him. Yeah. He very quickly in his adult life gets into arguments with people. 
So when he's 22 in the Quaker meeting minutes, there is a mention of Benjamin Mifflin complaining about his uncle, George Mifflin, the grandfather of Thomas Mifflin, eventually. It doesn't actually say what the specifics of the argument are. It just sort of says Benjamin Mifflin is mad at his uncle and brings it up. And, you know, the Quakers would like to keep an eye on it and see if they can mediate in this dispute. And then two months later, there's another mention of this dispute where it's written down that there are other people concerned in the affair. Therefore, all of the parties need to be in attendance to solve the dispute. They can't do it at this time. But it's really interesting, right? It's like (laughs) Benjamin is fighting with his uncle to such an extent that Benjamin's just standing up in church and being like, hey, I'm mad at my uncle and I can't, we need help sorting this out because my uncle's a dick. (laughs) Essentially. I mean, this kind of becomes a theme (laughs) with Benjamin uh, over the years. And I mean, he's a little bit spoiled. He comes from this well-to-do family. Uh, We we know at some point he owned slaves Mm -hmm. uh, and servants. Uh, he, he actually placed an ad about an escaped servant. Yeah, in 1742, there was a servant man named Henry Carpenter, by trade a carpenter. It actually says this in the <laughs> ad. <laughs> and it says that he is of dark complexion, black hair, and tall. By dark complexion, my guess is he was probably Irish or perhaps Spanish, or something like, I don't think that they mean African. Um, Because they call him pale later. (laughs) Right, they call his son pale. Wait, Uh, so, uh, he is of dark complexion, black hair and tall, draws in his talk, and is a great boaster. (laughs) Had on when he went away a blue-gray coat, dark-colored, flowered, sustian jacket, lined with blue, homespun shirt and trousers, and a garlic shirt, new-soled shoes has a son with him of his own name, about 14 years old, pale-looked and thin. Whoever secures said servant so that his master may have him again shall have 40 shillings reward and reasonable charges paid by Benjamin Mifflin. I guess if his name's Henry, he's probably not Irish or Spanish. Well, and also... If the servant was an African person, they would have referred to the servant as a Negro, probably, in the advertisement, because there is another advertisement from Benjamin Mifflin from later on, which says, A likely Negro woman and child. She is about 22 years old, country-born, has had the smallpox and measles, is sober, honest, a very good house Negro, and sold for no other reason than her fast breeding, having had four children in less than five years. Also, two years and a half of a white servant maid time, a low-priced horse, and a two-mast boat, 30 feet keel, almost new." This is in the classified ads of a newspaper, uh, actually in the 1760s, but it just goes to show you that Benjamin Mifflin had slaves and also white servants, and he thought of them as his property and would put them in an advertisement along with a boat and a horse. Yeah, as as much as we spoke about the Quakers being very forward-thinking on a lot of this stuff... Uh, It's not like it was a light switch that you just flip on and off. No. Especially amongst the merchant class and the the wealthy. Yeah. I get the feeling that it was really the rich Quakers who were holding out on this idea of slavery being 
inherently violent, which seems really logical. But hey, okay, cutting backwards though, I also want to bring up a more personal anecdote that was related in the Quaker meeting minutes when he was 24. When you did something bad in the Quaker community and got called out for it, you often had the chance to write a letter expressing your contrition and repentance and read it out loud and give it to the Quaker congregation that you were a member of. And then that would sort of be your come to Jesus moment, for lack of a better word, where you would be forgiven by the congregation and you would swear that you would make amends and do better. So in 1742, there is a note in the Quaker meeting, minutes, Benjamin Mifflin brought in a paper condemning his breach of discipline respecting marriage, which was read to the satisfaction of this meeting. Awkward. I know. I mean, it's not like that stuff doesn't happen and hasn't always happened, but it's like you actually have to come in and and just kind of lay it out on the table in front of all of your church. Right. I mean, (laughs) honestly, it's... I guess it's not a terrible idea. No, I think it it, it speaks to the the openness of of the Quakers. And I mean, just, yeah, everybody has problems. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's a little different to Catholic confession, which is behind closed doors. And, you know, the priest never has to reveal what you said. Right. You know, all the gossiping that Quakers do is out in the public. Right. You know, it's, that it's just all right there. Yeah, it's, we've uh, all talked about it. We've not only talked about it, we've written down the fact that we've talked about it. Oh, Benjamin, <laughs> it's been like 250 plus years and here we are talking <laughs> about you cheating on your wife. Oh, poor Benjamin. Anyway, and poor Benjamin's wife, who uh, was either a Sarah or a Hannah. <laughs> so, <laughs> he married three times, I believe. And it was like Hannah, Sarah, and another Sarah. Would you believe his children were named Sarah, Hannah, <laughs> And Mary. (laughs) And Benjamin. (laughs) Anyhow, Benjamin became a merchant like the rest of his family. And he was a very good merchant. He was extremely business-minded. And the way he expresses himself as a merchant, it reminds me a lot of libertarian businessmen, like very capitalistic businessmen that are around today. You know, he's extremely interested in commerce and uh, his business at all times. He's constantly thinking about how to ship things places. What's the price of sugar and of oats and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And we know that because of a journal that uh, survived an outhouse fire. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In the New York Public Library, there is a published version of the journal that was written by Benjamin Mifflin in 1762. It was discovered after an outhouse court fire. Somebody found like a pile of just like, I guess, lots of old papers and made good money selling one of them that had a bunch of signers of the Declaration of the Independence had had signed something that ended up in this outhouse. Right. And shortly after that, the outhouse 
mysteriously caught fire. And then some boys, some little boys, were poking around the outhouse fire's charred remains and discovered some unburned papers in the bottom of everything and plucked them out, took them to their dad, and their dad was like, hey, these are kind of interesting. Let's publish them and distribute That's them great. to There's libraries. There's like an introduction um, in the published version that says, look, this isn't super important. It's really just day-to-day stuff that may help someone in the future who wants to like fill in the details of basically exactly what we're doing. Right. Like, Life in the 1700s. Yeah. And it details him taking a trip from Philadelphia down to Annapolis and over to Dover. And true to uh, the preface, he's really just kind of making note of things that would be important to him as a business person. Right. He, he spends a lot of time describing each town and it's it's very funny i think it's very funny because he kind of shits on everything he sees complaining the whole time he's like oh this town only has one good house in it which is the tavern where i stayed but they didn't even have anything good to drink they just had rum and my horse took one look at the marsh hay and wouldn't touch any of it which is dumb (laughs) because i had to pay for it i paid for hay that he smelled and looked at but did not eat right at one point like he's, he's kind of snarky about it he's super snarky <laughs> i just i think of him as just a guy with no filter you yeah. know like he just says exactly what he thinks i mean he's writing down exactly what he thinks but i get the impression that he was like that in person as well when he gets down to delaware he has some relatives from his mother's side of the family who live in delaware and he's <laughs> just saying very blunt things about them in this journal. He's like, well, I met my cousin's wife. She's 36 and looks pretty good. I think that she definitely got the better end of this bargain. They also have a real pretty kid. She's five. Oh, you know, she'll look okay if she doesn't get... Smallpox. Smallpox. (laughs) If she lives. If she lives. If she even lives. If she even lives (laughs) and doesn't get smallpox, I guess she'll make a real pretty lady. It's a shame she doesn't have the kind of education we have in Philadelphia. Yes. Stupid, dumb kid. (laughs) (laughs) Although, to be fair, he is at least lamenting the the lack of education for a young girl. True, which is funny because, you know, his writing is nothing to write home about. His writing is full of spelling and grammatical errors. Compared to a modern education, we might find it lacking, but he could write. Nothing ever changes. I know, I know. Yeah, he's a bit of a YouTube commenter that way, I guess. (laughs) Um, Anyway, he's he's saying things in this journal that I'm sure would have not won him a lot of friends if he spoke them out loud. And I get the impression that he maybe did sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Because he seems to be feuding with members of his family a fair bit. Another way that this plays out in terms of him being a business person. A who's, slightly amoral business person, let's say. Yeah, he, he <laughs> definitely has his own interests in mind. <laughs> um, it comes to play out in the purchase of the four lots described in this deed that Melissa had, had found right, online. from 1745. So one of the reasons that I was super curious about the history of the deeds on this property is that when I first saw this 1745 deed, I noticed that it described our property as being 20 feet wide and 100 feet deep. Like I mentioned uh, a little earlier, he got four properties next to each other and each of the properties were 20 feet wide. So if you're not keeping a notebook next to you with podcast stats, are, are 
our building is 16 feet wide. Right. And our current deed says that our property is 16 feet wide. So I had this question about why this discrepancy existed. You know, my first thought was, did they measure feet differently back then? I mean, they had smaller feet, right? They didn't have all the hormones in chicken that made our feet so big. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) But, you know, another question was, did a property line get smudged somewhere? You know, might it be possible that we have an extra four feet of property that we don't know about? Like, where, where did this happen? Where did these four feet get lost? And it took a little while to figure this out. And when I figured it out, I must have laughed for five minutes straight because it's a doozy. It's <laughs> it's like I both hate and admire Benjamin Mifflin for his chutzpah in this endeavor. Yeah, I mean, if you have ever gotten into the purchase of a house or property and you've just stared at the language, these deeds that are out there with all of this nonsensical garbage crazy legalese right everybody talks about how legalese is impossible to understand it it turns out you can thank folks like benjamin mifflin for yeah yeah because it's an interesting progression if you look at all of the deeds on this property they tend to get longer and longer and longer and there tend to be like more synonyms added at every stage of stating what the deed is about so as i mentioned in the initial 1745 deed it says that He's being given these four lots so that he will build four houses of brick or stone. Your first assumption, I am sure, upon listening to this, and the most logical assumption, and I am sure what John Thomas and Richard Penn meant when they prepared this deed, would be that Benjamin Mifflin was tasked with building one house per lot, right? It says four houses facing Callow Hill Street each facing Callow Hill Street. Seems pretty straightforward. It seems super straightforward. It seems like very... Four lots, four buildings. Right. That makes total sense, right? Um, one of the interesting things in Benjamin Mifflin's journal as he's traveling down the East Coast is he complains sometimes in his journal about the cost of building things in Philadelphia and how building materials were very expensive. And clearly, I think, this endeavor <laughs> was one of the things that shaped those views. Benjamin Mifflin was tasked in this deed with building these four houses within five years of the deed. So by 1750, you would assume he's built these houses. In 1753, there is an application to mortgage one of these houses. And here is where things get really interesting. This is the document that unlocked what happened. (laughs) You have to listen really closely to understand this because it's kind of an amazing bait and switch in the middle of it. According to the 1753 mortgage, Mifflin was granted four contiguous lots of 20 foot each lot by 100 feet. And the said Benjamin Mifflin having according to a certain covenant and condition in the said recited patent mentioned, erected four brick messuages or tenements on the westernmost of the four contiguous lots of ground aforesaid. Okay, catch that word westernmost for a second and hold it in your brain because we're going to go a little further. Did in and by a certain indenture bearing date the 14th day of November in the year 1751 mortgaged two of the aforesaid contiguous messuages or tenements and the ground thereunto belonging containing in breadth east-west 
32 foot. So. Yeah, this is, re- this is it's hard to explain <laughs> this in audio, but think about this. These homes, these messuages as they call them, are essentially row homes, right? They're homes that share wall in between. We have these four lots that are 20 foot each. And it mentions that he built the four houses on the westernmost of those four lots and that two of the houses together are 32 foot wide. This means that one house is 16 foot wide. So if you put four 16 foot wide houses next to each other side by side on four 20 foot lots, you fortuitously have an extra 16 feet left over at the end. So basically what he did was turn 80 feet worth of lots, which should have been four lots into five 16 foot lots. Philadelphia was planned out as this, you know, spacious city of homes Mm -hmm. and, you know, Penn wanted everybody to have a yard around everything. Already by the 1750s, we've got subdivision within subdivision. Right. Technically, these houses that Benjamin Mifflin built, three of them were laid on top of property lines. So if you had tried to sell a property, you would have gotten, you know, a third of a house and two thirds of another house. You could no longer, you know, think about those property lines as containing a whole house. But he followed the letter of the deed. Mm -hmm. He got four lots. He built four buildings on those lots. Doesn't say anywhere on the deed that you're supposed to put one on each lot. It doesn't say that. So if you look at every other freaking lot (laughs) on this block, they're all 20 feet wide, except except for these buildings. Except for these five Benjamin Mifflin lots. Because, of course, once he had built these 16-foot wide houses, these skinny little houses on this lot... The city was forced to subdivide those four lots into five lots because otherwise it would just make the houses unusable. So not only did he save money on the construction of the four houses... Because they were four foot smaller. He could actually turn that around and sell five lots where there had once been four. Yeah, it's kind of brilliant. And it's also a major dick move. Because <laughs> <laughs> the difference between 16 feet and 20 feet is actually quite a lot like you know it's 25 percent difference and you can do a lot more with a 20 foot wide lot than you can with a 16 foot wide lot. 400 square feet yeah it's a lot (laughs) it's a lot (laughs) anyway um, (laughs) the one thing that I, i kind of feel like i have to thank him for it if our lot has been 20 foot wide instead of 16 foot wide i don't think it would have been on the market the way it was in 2015. Yeah, or maybe when uh, the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation was bulldozing entire neighborhoods, they would not have stopped at this building. It might have been just far enough over the line that they took this one down too in True. the 70s. It could have happened. So I kind of, we kind of have Benjamin Mifflin to thank for being able to own this building. And at the same time, I really wish our stage could be 20 (laughs) feet wide instead of, you know, 15 or so feet wide. It would make kind of a difference. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) Another interesting thing is that 
this shady property developer bending the rules and finding loopholes within deeds and laws is so Philadelphia. Of course, it has just persisted to this day in one shape or another, um, right down to things like uh, installing a, quote, storage space with uh, an electric door in the front of your house in a neighborhood where you're not allowed to have garages. Right. So this has happened in our neighborhood in Northern Liberties as it gentrifies. The city council makes laws that you can't have a garage because it takes away street parking. But developers will just build a garage and say it's not a garage. And then it's up to future owners of that property to petition the city and beg for a curb cut because they have this garage that they're not allowed to use and hope that some future board zoning meeting will take pity on them. I mean, that's essentially what Benjamin Mifflin did by building these houses across property lines and forcing the city to go, well, this makes no sense. I guess we have to make 16 foot lots. Great. Yeah, it's funny. The The journal that he kept was actually written a couple of years after he sold off these lots. He skipped town, went to Delaware. <laughs> I kind of wonder. Yeah, I, I do wonder if people didn't like him. <laughs> like, you know, personally, he I mean, he did manage to have some long term business partners because he was very good at making money. So there was a business partner, Samuel Massey with whom Mifflin had a firm creatively called Mifflin and Massey. That firm has some of its business documents in the collection of the Maritime Museum near us. And one of these days, we should go down and take a look at them. Yeah. But <laughs> I thought you were going to bring up uh, the uh, Australian connection Oh yeah, that we have here. Uh, <laughs> speaking of business partners. Yes. So I wrote a blog entry about Benjamin Mifflin. And out of the blue, completely out of the blue, I got contacted by someone from my hometown of Brisbane, Australia, um, (laughs) (laughs) which is super, super random. Um, His name is Lyndon Garbett. And he wrote to me because he'd found my blog in a completely random Google search. He was actually researching Lottie Lemon, the famous singer and uh, her visit to Brisbane in 1939. And my blog came up because I once won an award from ASCAP called the Lottie Lehman (laughs) Award, and I'm from Brisbane, so my blog pinged up, and he started reading, and then was shocked to discover that I had just blogged about Benjamin Mifflin. Because? As it turns out, he is a descendant of Benjamin Mifflin's final wife. Uh, towards the end of his life, Benjamin Mifflin married a widow who already had kids. And uh, this guy, Lyndon Garbett, has done his genealogy and uh, knows about Benjamin Mifflin because he's kind of in the family tree. Benjamin Mifflin's final wife had a daughter who was married to a guy called John Klaus. It's kind of a little confusing how his name is pronounced. It's C-L-O-W-E-S, which would seem to be close, but I'm going to say Klaus, and we'll get into why in a minute. John Klaus was Benjamin Mifflin's business partner, and they lived in Delaware, and the two of them actually got into some trouble because they were getting into political scraps, shall we say. Yeah, this was fascinating because... 
these guys were really early starters in terms of stirring up a lot of noise. They were actually literally calling for terrorist attacks against the crown in 1770. I bet there was a lot of lead in their food. (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Anyway, I had found a newspaper letter to the editor, essentially, that Benjamin Mifflin published in 1770. At this time, he was living down in Sussex County, Delaware, and he wrote this incredibly angry... I mean, it's a really angry letter to the editor... And I don't understand 100% of the argument that he was making. Because, like, you're coming into the argument in the middle of the argument. But, But I'll read it because I think it's very funny. Pleased to acquaint the public that I am guilty of speaking so many plain truths in the piece I promised them through the channel of your paper. Just speaking truth, bro. As mentioned in your last... That on reconsidering the matter, I am constrained to withdraw it. For the more truths that are spoken against a tyrannic, despotic administration, the greater is the libel, according to the despotic proceedings of a Stuart's reign and a Star Camber court. I actually don't know a lot of what that means. Anyway, well, I'll keep going. It's, it's clearly it's angry. It's very decorative, it's, but angry. It's very angry. Okay. Those acts are repealed, but the precedents are still made use of by the present generation of tyrants so as to make it unsafe for a free man to open his mouth. Oh, Britons, stop your mouths, cut out your tongues, and chop off your fingers. Is it not better to live thus maimed in a state where you dare not nor cannot, however you may think, Anything against your grand monarchs? For if some of them are your assemblymen, and the rest of them are striving to be so, and to impose on you a creature of theirs for your sheriff, who has power to make fools and sycophants your jurors, your wives and children may be beggared, and your heads made buttons of. But you will say, perhaps, those laws are antiquated or obsolete, For late juries in New York, as in the case of Zenga, and in Britain, have exploded that accursed doctrine, calculated only for Eastern and Moorish empires, that speaking truth is a libel. True. But Sussex on Delaware is not in New York, nor in England. Can you assure me, as connections are below, a jury cannot be packed? that would lick up the excrement of Jeffreys, nor a sycophant mercenary attorney that would not hug his ghost? Well, then, you may say, turn mohawk and bushfight them. You that have abilities will undertake it and keep within the verge of truth shall have the hearty concurrence of Benjamin Mifflin. <laughs> so, to, to really boil that down to a tweet... Uh-huh. Uh, if you believe in free speech and trial by jury, uh, do like the Mohawks. Right. And uh, wage guerrilla warfare. Wage guerrilla warfare. <laughs> this is in 1770. These guys got thrown in jail multiple times. Right. For being outspoken about this sort of thing. Right. The reason that uh, we pronounce Klaus, Klaus actually has to do with uh, a little article in the Pennsylvania Journal back in 1771. And this was brought to my attention by the descendant of Klaus, who found this in a book and sent it to me. Right. He was looking down a a very different family line. We were just looking at Benjamin Mifflin, and he's just... 
happened to be working on his business partner's family tree. Right. And he says, let Wilkes and McDougal and Mifflin and Klaus, those strugglers for freedom, Dame Liberty's spouse. Klaus and spouse, it rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> but what's the effect? You see each of them fail, and each one by turns have experienced jail. Oh. Like men in a bog, when releasement they think, the longer they struggle, the deeper they sink. Ah, so, you know, <laughs> these guys are fighting back against what they see as a tyrannical government. And people are arguing about whether or not their efforts are worthwhile. So, you know, this is all happening in a newspaper column, <laughs> yeah. which is the Twitter of the day. <laughs> Right, so this is this is happening. Uh, they're printing this in Philadelphia while this sort of thing is actually happening down in Dover, Delaware. Mm-hmm. Like news is spreading. Really, the beginnings of what would become the Revolutionary War uh, waged by this guy who <laughs> did some shady shit. Yeah, I mean, but you know, he was incredibly outspoken, and mm-hmm. that's what people needed to get themselves passionate enough about the idea of liberty from the tyrannical British government that dared to tax them and tell them who they could and could not sell and buy from. Yeah. When you talk about patriots and founding fathers, like these guys are the dictionary term of the early American patriots. Right. And during the Revolutionary War and after the Revolutionary War, Benjamin Mifflin and John Klaus were definitely thought of as true American patriots. Yeah. And this American patriotism that was fomenting at this time was already starting to conflict with Quaker ideas about complete nonviolence and pacifism. Uh, And Benjamin Mifflin actually got into trouble for this in the 1760s, like as we're coming closer and closer towards an inevitable conflict between America and Britain, the Quakers are trying as hard as they can to stand firm on their beliefs that one should never fight and one should never use violence. And Benjamin Mifflin, being kind of a hot-headed guy, he got into some trouble. So th- there is a, a Quaker meeting minute from 1764, which states, Benjamin Mifflin attended this meeting with a paper expressing sorrow for his taking up arms in the second month last, and that it proceeded from the hurry and commotion which then attended and prevented sufficient time for reflection or opportunity of consulting with friends on the occasion, and that the call of the magistracy for the suppression of a riot which threatened murder to innocent persons and general disturbance to the city prevailed with him at that time to join in a military appearance. But on serious deliberation, he finds his conduct was wrong and is convinced that all wars and fighting are anti-Christian, which being read and favorable account being given by the friends who have visited him of his disposition of mind, there is ground to hope what he offers proceeds from a motive of sincerity. So it's sort of, it sounds like the magistracy, the magistrates that Benjamin Mifflin have such a problem with, was suppressing a riot and Benjamin Mifflin was like, fuck you! (laughs) And took up arms and was all ready to fight. And um, a few months later, he got dubbed in as we say in Australia, and the quake is demanded an explanation. And he wrote a very contrite letter saying, yeah, um, sorry, I, no, totally, fighting's bad. Uh, fighting's bad. It's 
<laughs> I, I, yeah, and then and then shortly after this, you know, he moves down to Delaware and is like literally calling for guerrilla warfare. <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah, I I get the feeling that, you know, as he's leaving Philadelphia, he's burning some bridges. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Another neat thing that came out of this, Lyndon Garbett actually sent us a copy of Benjamin Mifflin's signature. You see the deeds and documents that we have associated with the Benjamin Mifflin period of the ownership of this property don't actually include that signature. So it was really fascinating that uh, a totally tangential blog about music attracted a fellow from your hometown. Yeah. And he actually managed to find his own connection. It's just, it's weird. Bizarre. Life, Life is a fever dream. It's very strange. Anyway, if anyone out there knows more information about any of the people that we talk about on this podcast we would love to hear from you please tag us on social media hit me up i will absolutely adore hearing any more information that you might have because as much research as i've done i know it's not enough anyway that is a whole lot of information about benjamin mifflin yeah but let's get back to present day 103 callow hill yeah and how we got here uh, and who got it next because i i think there's some fun stuff in the next owners yes totally story um, so the next owner i wasn't able to find for months actually i couldn't find any owners between benjamin mifflin and the 1872 deed that i dead ended at i guess that was probably at the end of 2014 i found that information because as i mentioned these historical deeds you have to go backward by people's names so if you don't have a name you can't look things up and if you have the first deed you can't go forward you can only go backwards however matt helped me solve this problem yeah so melissa had the the power of this you know wonderful collection of resources at the pen library uh i just had the internet (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's all the internet yeah um so i occasionally would be searching uh, different resources online for just keywords like front and callow hill because that appeared on our deeds a lot those streets were clearly around at the time that we're looking for. And I think I actually found the interesting bit, the key to this particular puzzle on newspapers.com. Totally like faked a free trial to, to get into this. But searching for Front and Callow Hill, I found in the classifieds um, or in, in just sort of like the community postings, a listing about the property going up for sale. In the 1800s, in about 1865, I think. And that's where I got a new last name. Yay! Which is exactly what I needed. (laughs) And that last name was? Burns. B-U-R-N-S. Yeah. Sometimes I find in historical documents, they screw up names. So I've seen this as Burns and also as the singular burn. Yeah, that's very true. Something along these lines. This gave us the opportunity to continue to walk backwards through the deeds now that we had jumped in a gap. Yeah. It turns out the Byrne family owned the property from 1804 through to a about 1872. There's some weirdness, but I'll get mm-hmm. into that in a, in a future episode. And I leapfrogged backwards, uh, finding each seller until I got to the owner right after Benjamin Mifflin. And that was a man named Abraham Carpenter. This carpenter was not a carpenter by trade. No, but I bet his family was carpenters. Oh, of course. I mean, isn't this the thing? This is the thing, right? Um, 
that everyone with the name Smith has a forebear who was probably a Smith, right? Right. I'm sure I had an ancestor who dunfed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right. um, (laughs) Yes, that's very true. Yeah. But, you know, as this particular Abraham Carpenter. Yeah. He was a Cooper. And he would, like many businessmen of the period, place advertisements in the newspaper talking about who he was and what he sold. But Abraham Carpenter did it with a twist, which I kind of love. Abraham Carpenter's sort of claim to early American fame is that in 1747, he published an advertisement that may well count as America's first advertising jingle. (laughs) I'm going to set this to music one day. I just got to figure out exactly what format. Um, This is how it goes. Two handsome chairs with very good gears, with horses or without, to carry his friends about, is to be hired by Abraham Carpenter the Cooper, and known to be a very good hoop maker, for masts of vessels and cringles so good as can be made out of good hickory wood, and truss hoops of any size for gentlemen, coopers, or merchandise. Likewise, saddle horses, if gentlemen please, to carry them handsomely, with a great deal of ease." NB, the said Abraham Carpenter, lives in Dock Street, Philadelphia, near the Golden Fleece. <laughs> now, that, that was in 1747, but uh, it became clear that Abraham Carpenter was a pretty successful guy, owned several properties around Philadelphia, mm-hmm. including, as it turns out, the building attached, well, not attached to ours, adjacent to ours. It's next door. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Um, right on the corner of Front Street and Callowhill Street, he owned uh, what was... At that time, and for many years previous to that time, a tavern. At this time, uh, the tavern was known by the sign of the ship aground. You know, taverns during this period were differentiated by a picture that they would hang on the outside of the tavern because a lot of people couldn't read. So you get a lot of taverns that are like the white horse. There's so many white horse taverns. Right. The black horse, the dusty boot, the ship aground, and then they would have a little painting of a ship, you know, wrecked on some rocks that they would hang outside the tavern. So Abraham Carpenter owned that. In about 1760 or 1761, we think that Abraham Carpenter purchased the land from Benjamin Mifflin. We don't have that deed, but what we do have is what's called a building patent, um, which is basically a building permit to build a new building in the spot that had been described before. So even though Mifflin had built those four buildings on his four lots, uh, the last 16 feet had remained vacant up through the 1760s. And Abraham Carpenter, since he owned buildings around it, bought this lot as well. And this was a a natural extension of what was clearly a growing real estate business for him. Sure. Uh, If we actually skip ahead a little bit in the timeline, I was able to find documents describing in great detail what the building was like at the time. This is so cool. The original building that Abraham Carpenter built on our lot. So this became kind of a weird obsession for me, which (laughs) continues to this day. This entire story is just our weird obsession. (laughs) (laughs) How many weird obsessions can we develop as a result of buying a piece of land? Uh, So (laughs) now that we had a lot more names uh, from deeds for owners of the property, 
I went looking for insurance documents. Philadelphia was the second largest city in the British Empire for a long time. There is uh, already a, a history of Quakers writing everything down that we touched on, but we also had tremendous amounts of lawyers and the insurance industry, uh, I believe, grew up here. And what's interesting is insurance, like building insurance, really started out at the hands of the Carpenters Union. This was a way to really solidify a means of generating revenue for carpenters. The idea was you would go around and if you paid an insurance company, they would take a survey of your house. This actually turned into greater surveys of the city and surveyors in general grew out of fire insurance. Mm -hmm. um, the maps that we were able to later look up from you know the mid to late 1800s were an outcropping of fire departments and fire insurance, which was all there so that carpenters could quickly get new jobs recreating what had been lost in fires in these generally brick buildings. So they would go into the house and what, describe every fitting, every piece of molding, um, how much detail was in the mantelpiece and, you know, what size the floorboards are and what size the panes of glass in the windows are. Because if they documented all of this stuff, then they would be able to rebuild it to the specifications and it would be paid out by the insurance company. But meanwhile, of course, people are paying their insurance premiums and keeping everything afloat. Yeah. One of the earliest, if not the earliest uh, insurance companies in Philadelphia is the Philadelphia Contribution Ship. They still exist to this day. Oh, they do? Yeah. Is that, do they have a different name or is that just, no, just that's, called? Oh, yeah. That's kind of fun. It's, yeah, it's, I, I, I love so much about this city. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when you walk around historic parts of Philadelphia, you might see little uh, sort of badges up on these older buildings that have four hands clasping each other mm -hmm. on the wrists. Uh, that indicates that the contribution ship ensures that building. Hmm. So knowing that the contribution ship went that far back, and knowing that I had names associated with the property, I started searching, and I hit two results. One from 1810, where they walk through and detail the, the tiny little stairs. Like, they're the most compact stairs you can get to go up through the building. And they give the dimensions of everything. And later, in 1843, they actually draw out a floor plan. Just the first floor. But you can see that this building that Abraham Carpenter made was three and a half stories with a, a dormer window. The woodwork wasn't terribly fancy. It was, you know, of decent quality. Um, it was just yellow pine floors, not highly decorative. And it's really, really interesting. Uh, I've fallen a little bit down a, a sketch-up pit. I'm, for no good reason, starting to make a recreation of the interior of the house as it existed back then. There was actually more than one house on the property by the 1800s, um, and I don't know exactly when the second building went up, but the original building in the front was built by Abraham Carpenter around 1761, and then behind that building, there was a second tenement building. Tenements are basically a cheap rental. It was two stories tall and there were two rooms on each floor, essentially. So it was kind of two tenements 
each with one up and one down. Right. And the rooms in that back tenement were just 12 feet by 14 feet. It was kind of like like a two-story trinity. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I would imagine, because also in the insurance documents, it talks about these tenements being like super basic. Like They're very basic. It's the equivalent of a build-a-grade apartment. <laughs> which uh, is, is what it was for. Abraham Carpenter didn't live here. He was renting this out to folks who were making things. When you read about what life was like in colonial Philadelphia, most people lived where they worked. Once you get outside of sort of the essentially aristocracy, once you get outside of the super rich, a lot of people were just making things in these first floor and maybe even basement, what they called manufactories or workshops. Uh, and they would live above there. And this was basically split out so that you had, uh, you know, maybe a shop in front and three different individual sets of housing, lower rent housing than, say, maybe, something larger. Maybe for, like, a blacksmith's assistant or, you know, an apprentice, say, who who was working at the, you know, wagon works behind or right. something or like that. or maybe even a potter, since we found that kiln furniture. Mm. Um, <laughs> we don't think there's a kiln on our property. That would be very evident. Uh, I think we would have found that by now. But even as late as 1843, the front of the building was a tailor and there was, you know, like a, a sail maker next door. This was all how these houses were designed uh, for this sort of thing. Anyway. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. This is the house that Abraham Carpenter built. <laughs> um, then Abraham Carpenter unfortunately passes away. At some point in the late 1760s, it's a little difficult to trace. I found a death record in, what is it, Gloucestershire in the UK from 1768 that said that a, an Abraham Carpenter died there. I don't know if it's the same Abraham Carpenter. It is entirely possible that Abraham Carpenter went back to England to die. That's something that people would do. I mean, Penn did it. <laughs> so it maybe that's him. What I do know is that in 1770, the Philadelphia sheriff seized Abraham Carpenter's property because he had passed away recently. Yeah, it was Mark Twain who said, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Right. So here again, we have the Philadelphia sheriff seizing a property because someone went away and uh, he seizes the property essentially because uh, the property is no longer paying its ground rent to the Penn family or to the city and uh, decides to sell it in a sheriff's sale. Hmm. <laughs> Very similar to the one that we almost <laughs> went to, except that I accosted the lawyer outside the building. <laughs> so already in, in so many nerdy ways, this research is totally paying off for us. Just yeah. like... It's it's the weirdest stuff that comes up. And it's only going to get weirder in the next episode because we're about to hit one of the most detailed historical research exercises I think I've ever done. Yeah, thankfully, it's actually going to be about the person who owned the property concurrent to when the artifacts that we found were thrown away. This is going to be the story of one Daniel Williams, also a Quaker. And... 
a very little known, but actually kind of important in some ways, founding father. Right. You're actually going to hear names of people you recognize, even names you would recognize as somebody who doesn't live in Pennsylvania. Yeah. True famous people who even my mother in Australia know the names of. <laughs> there are even more twists and turns and actually a parallel to our own archaeological adventures. Yeah, it blew my mind. I can't wait to tell you about it. And then going beyond that, once we get through this little bit of history, our podcast is going to make another genre turn. Yeah, we're going to become a little bit of a true crime podcast. Because as we get into the 19th century, let me tell you, there was a shitload of crime. Things get really nasty. <laughs> uh, and we've got one guy in particular that we've got a pretty incredible story about. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm Matt Dunphy. And I'm Melissa Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear. 